University professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you might be. This is Dr. Christopher Bell, and we are here on the Deconstruction Workers. Our guest today is Dr. Kyle Contour. Kyle, good morning, good afternoon. Well, yeah. it's, it's morning now. It's where morning we are. now. And today we are talking a little bit about My Little Pony and transgressive fandom. And so I think we should probably start this conversation by talking a little bit about what we mean by transgressive fandom. And then we'll, we'll get into My Little Pony here in a second. Transgressive fandom is when someone is a fan of something that they're not supposed to be. So this happens all the time, whether the transgression is in terms of age, for example, people who are grown-ups who are fans of cartoons, or a lot of times it's gendered, witness the, the complete uproar when the NFL hired its first female announcer, and people got all up in arms about that, uh, because, you know, girls ain't supposed to like sports, sportsing. <laughs> <laughs> or or whatever. There's a lot to be said for the ways in which people become suspicious when someone doesn't get in the box that they're supposed to be in. Yeah, I would I would say so. And it, it has to do not only with the construction of what the pop culture property or whatever is supposed to be. So those things, those entities have values by themselves. And that gets complicated when we also have ideas about what men and women and girls and boys and so on are supposed to like as in oh well you grow up you're a little boy you play with trucks and you fight with swords and you do all this stuff and when either you don't do that or someone else out of the other group does do that it creates problems for some people it's also important to remember that the transgressiveness is almost never on the part of the fan it's always on the part of other people so it's not right, like right. i'm a fan of this thing i'm not supposed to be a fan of and i'm the one who feels bad about it yeah it, it, it's it's the the outside people who get upset but you know one thing we'll i want to hit on later is also how in some instances fans are self-aware of the supposed transgression and they indulge in that as being a transgressive fan right we see this in a lot of different kinds of fandom for example, you know, the gamer girls or the right. the geek girls who show up to Comic-Con and are aggressively proud of their fandom. <laughs> right, right. That's a perfect example. Uh, and that aggression causes a little bit of suspicion right. among the so-called real fans as well. Well, the way I explain it to my students is like this. Let's say, let's say the Broncos are in the Super Bowl. Stretch, but let's say. <laughs> let's say the Denver Broncos go to the Super Bowl and I throw a Super Bowl party and people start showing up and there are going to be 
different kinds of people who show up to the Super Bowl party wearing Broncos gear. At the low end, there's going to be the person who shows up in a Broncos shirt because they live in Colorado and because the Broncos are in the Super Bowl and they wanted to come to the party. They don't care a whole lot about football or about the Broncos particularly. They're just there because it's the party to be at. There's this second group of people who are going to show up who are going to wear Broncos gear because they are a fan of the Broncos and they like the team, but they don't really push very much farther than that. This is my team and I like this team and that's about as well as it goes. There's this third group of people who are going to show up who are hardcore Broncos fans. And these are the people who are dying to talk about every stat, every play, every player who's ever played, where they went to college. They've got all of this knowledge. So let's say... With that in mind, someone shows up at my Denver Broncos Super Bowl party and they are wearing a vintage number 27 Steve Atwater jersey. First kind of person doesn't care because they don't know that that's a thing. It's an orange Broncos jersey and everyone else is wearing orange. and that's how they read it. And that's how they read it. Second group of people go, oh, you're a Denver Broncos fan and that's a pretty cool jersey. Welcome to, you know, being a fan with us. Mm Mm-hmm. Third kind of person necessarily walks up to that person and starts the quiz. Necessarily. (laughs) Right. They want to know how much you like Atwater and why that particular jersey and did you see the hit on Christian Okoye and they're going to start the quiz. And if the person wearing the Atwater jersey doesn't know the stuff, that person's going to be really, really mad. Right. They're going to and they'll label them as a poser. Exactly. You're not allowed to wear that jersey because you're not a real fan. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be that that person's wearing that jersey because it belonged to their dad. Or it could be they're wearing that jersey because they saw it and they thought it was cool. Or maybe they've seen the highlight singularly of the Christian Okoye hit. But that's all they know about Steve Atwater at all. And they maybe only kind of accidentally found, oh, does it say Atwater on the back? I was just looking at number 27. So they'll, they're trying to find an in, but they're not there yet. They haven't delved deeply enough. And so because this is the way that fandom works, because within any fandom, there's a certain group of people whose job it is whose job i say loosely it is to sort of (laughs) police the borders of the fandom what that does for people who aren't quote-unquote supposed to be there in the first place the transgressive fan is it immediately puts that transgressive fan on the radar Mm -hmm. the job of that person is to come and to say you're not supposed to be here for whatever reason and we see this all the time particularly at things like comic cons or anytime groups of fans get together, there will be someone who wanders that crowd specifically to find the people they don't believe should be there and then out them. Right. And part of that policing, too, is about the ebbs and flows of the popularity of the fandom. I mean, if you just want to stick to the Broncos for a second, I know there will be Broncos fans who would be skeptical of someone wandering around in a Tebow jersey, for example. Like, oh, you just, you were part of that whole bandwagon, and you're also not good enough of a fan to realize he's no longer on the team. And it might be just that that person, like, that's the only gear I have, or, well, that was a really great season, and I want to remember that. Or, you know, they could have a whole other set of reasons and still be a quote-unquote real fan, but that's not how they're going to be treated by most of the fans around them. Or I'm a fan of this season of this team. Yes. Because fandoms are also located. I remember I got in this big fight with some some random person on Facebook, on a friend's Facebook page, about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
(laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Because I'm a huge Turtles fan. I have this giant Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tattoo down my leg. I've been collecting since 1984. I'm a huge Turtles fan. But I'm a fan of Eastman and Laird original first run Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty much specifically not a fan of almost everything that came after once they got on television. Right. Probably the early 90s on. I don't care about. Which is funny because I think, like, if you were to take a poll of people who claim to be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fans, that would be the core right. uh, group of, of people sort of in their late 30s who grew up with that cartoon. Not people who were collecting the comic books when you know, Shredder gets stabbed in the face three issues in. (laughs) And almost no fan probably did it that way, but that's the way my fandom developed. And so my fandom is located in about 1984 through 1987. So I got into this conversation with this woman who said to me, well, how come you can't be a fan of the new films? Because I'm a fan of the new films. And I was trying to explain to her that For me, that's not even the same property. That's not even the same thing. We're literally a fan of two different things. Mm. And the thing I'm a fan of is a thing you don't know anything about. So when I say I'm not a fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in their current incarnation, I'm not saying I'm not a fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm saying I'm not a fan of your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. We're different kinds of fans of a similar thing that's not the same thing. Just as a side note, we're starting to see this fissure erupt with Star Wars, which I find oh, very absolutely. interesting. <laughs> not only because of the latest movie, but you know, the, the generation gap between the sort of OT fans and the prequel fans, and, and now we have all these other ones and people complaining, oh, Star Wars isn't special anymore. And Oh, it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting to say the least over the next 10, 15 years. That's an excellent point you're making. So, where I find myself as a transgressive fan, both in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and then oddly enough conversely in Star Wars fandom is in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I'm the transgressive fan because I'm the fan of the thing before it got popular and who doesn't like the popular version of the thing. Mm-hmm. which then makes me transgressive. But in Star Wars, I'm the exact opposite. But because of my age, I'm supposed to think that 77 through 83 Star Wars is the pure and best version of Star Wars. But I don't. I actually think Rogue One is the best Star Wars movie ever made. And it's basically brand new. Right. And so that then makes me a transgressive fan amongst the exact same group of people who would be my tribe, so to speak, in a different fan property. Yeah, and part of that transgression is not just because people resent the way that you like something, but you symbolize a group of people for whom they vie for control of what that thing means. Right. This is the argument we get into about Transformers all the time, where G1, what Generation 1, 1984, 85, 86, 87 fans, who say, Michael Bay has destroyed my childhood. And mm. other people come around and say, well, no, he hasn't. You still have that stuff. And what we say is, but they won't make anything new in the style that we like because you keep buying the garbage. 
Right. And so they think the garbage is cool, so they keep making the garbage instead of the thing that's actually cool because you're in the desert drinking the sand and thinking it's water. (laughs) And they might retort with, look, you have your old and busted Transformers and we get the new hotness. Right. But the new hotness is trash and they don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly what we're talking about. So this is, in a nutshell, the, the essence of transgressive fandom, where... You have crossed the border into a land you're not supposed to be in. Where it becomes really interesting is with something like My Little Pony, which is what I wanted to talk with you specifically about today, because both of our daughters at one point were very into My Little Pony and sort of sucked their fathers into the show vicariously. Mm. Yes. So where My Little Pony's transgressive fandom comes in is that it wasn't from within the fandom community that the label of transgressive got slapped on a very particular group of fans, which we'll get into here in a second, but by people who have nothing to do with the fandom whatsoever and want those transgressive fans to not have anything to do with it either. Right. And who do not care one way or the other about My Little Pony, but they care about these fans enjoying it for reasons have that we'll get into. <laughs> right. Exactly. So uh, a little backstory before we get into it, about My Little Pony as a thing. Because My Little Pony is one of Hasbro's big three, big three properties. And by big three, I mean in 1984, when all of the deregulation of children's advertising was happening in the Reagan administration, groups of toy creators were trying to muscle their way into the market because for the first time, you could directly market toys to children using cartoons and then not tell them that was advertising. So the big three for Hasbro to push into this market were G.I. Joe, Transformers, and My Little Pony. G.I. Joe and Transformers marketed directly towards boys. My Little Pony marketed directly towards girls. And at the time, you had lots of other players, Barbie and He-Man and Thundercats and all these things were trying to get into the market. And so My Little Pony developed as a small line of plastic horses for girls. They were originally called My Pretty Pony and... In 1983, they switched it over. They teamed with Marvel and Sunbow, who at the time were creating cartoons for G.I. Joe and Transformers, but they were trying to push into that market for girls, and so they created the My Little Pony and Friends show in 1986, which got 65 episodes on television. And then... They tried to revamp it again five years later with the My Little Pony Tales. That didn't really work out. Only about 26 episodes then. They took it basically off of television. And then in 2007, when Michael Bay, who is my, I think every human being has a nemesis somewhere (laughs) in the world (laughs) who does not know that that's that person's nemesis and probably wouldn't care that that's that person's nemesis, but... You're like the agrajag to his Arthur Dent. Exactly. If I ever catch Michael Bay in the street. <laughs> so <laughs> all the things that I care about, Transformers and, and Ninja Turtles and all the things I care about, he just completely could care less about and is destroying systematically. But anyway, so... When Bay takes over Transformers in 2007, Hasbro sort of jumps on this bandwagon of, well, let's revamp all our old properties. Let's put The Rock in G.I. Joe and try to make that a thing again. And let's do all this new stuff. And they had also just purchased a stake in this television network called The Hub. 
which very quickly faded. But they had this new venue and they had these two properties for boys that they were resurfacing. And so they decided they were going to resurface My Little Pony. And they went to a woman named Lauren Faust. Lauren Faust got really famous working with Craig McCracken on Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends and the Powerpuff Girls. And they go to Lauren Faust and they say, hey, we're going to revamp My Little Pony. Do you want to do it? And she says, um, hell to the knock. And they said, well, why wouldn't you want to do this? And she said, My Little Pony was not a good show when it was on the air in 1986. It just was not a good show. They cried a whole bunch. They solved their problems by having tea parties. And it was really lame. And Lauren Faust said, I don't want to be in charge of a property for girls that does that. And Hasbro essentially said, you can kind of do whatever you want. And she said, anything I want? And they said, yes. And so what she did was produce this very subversively five-year-old feminist text. Lots and lots of feminist principles embedded within the text very very good programming and i think i would emphasize it's it's a specific brand of third wave wave feminism as well yes. where it's a sort of like you can be feminine in a variety of different ways including from one extreme of rarity who's this sort of you know the the pretty precious one who cares about her looks and nice things to the rough and tumble like Applejack, for example. I should also point out for our listeners who are not on college campuses all day, what we mean by third wave feminist is this breed of feminism that really gets its start during the 1980s after the equal rights revolution of the 1970s, where women begin to reclaim femininity as a part of feminism, where you didn't have to be like a man or be a man hater. Whenever people talk about feminism in 2018 and they talk about feminist as man hating and man bashing and whatever, I know for a fact that person's over like 60 years old. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're, they're thinking of the mythical bra burners and they're reacting to the feminine mystique and such publications. And they don't know anything about the, there's a feminist backlash against that that was intended to be more inclusive, less, more inter less interested in white women problems and more about, hey, I can still be a homemaker and I can still dress pretty and still be feminist. Yeah, still be feminist and, and ask for equal footing in the workplace and so on. And this sort of third wave feminism, which leads into what some people are calling fourth wave or post-feminist, which for girls like our daughters, one of whom is 12 um, and one of whom is 11. Yeah. And Coming up on 11, though. For our two daughters who are preteen right now, feminism is kind of like fluoride in the water. They don't even notice <laughs> right. how feminist the society is around them or the benefits that they reap from these second and third wave feminists. So anyway, that's that was a, that was a detour. But essentially, Lauren Faust creates this show, which in the first season, at least, and for a large extent in the second season, when she is still very, very involved in the show, she's going to get shoved out of the show, which we'll talk about. But in those first couple of seasons, that show is amazingly written. It's very well crafted, both in terms of animation and in terms of storytelling. And it's very accessible to an audience that is not the five to seven-year-old demographic where that property was being shoved. So that made it pretty easy for it to suck in this secondary group of fans. The secondary group of fans it sucked in were adult men, some of whom were brought into the fandom via our children, 
but some of whom were brought into the fandom via the fact that the show was on a network where they were watching things like Transformers and G.I. Joe. Those shows led into this particular show. They watched it and they realized, oh, this show is actually, you know, good. It's not just some random cartoon, quote unquote, for girls. It's a show with a lot of good values, a lot of good messages. It's a show that's well-written, it's funny, it's well-crafted, and they liked it on its own in and of itself. Yeah, and I think an important component of that, too, is the way that that's spread on places like 4chan and Tumblr and Reddit, where there's already a a built-in audience for people who almost exclusively watch cartoons, whether it's anime or whether it's stuff like Adventure Time. It's all animated fandom of fans of animation who like anything that's well-crafted for whatever audience, and most of which these days have adult sort of humor and jokes in them anyway, which is very different than, you know, the 1980s, those cartoons are just for kids. And there's basically, if you're an adult, you want to blow your brains out watching them. And that's not the cartoon ecosystem now. Virtually anything you see, even supposedly just for kids, has a lot of stuff that definitely are jokes for adults or just that things that adults can appreciate. Right. I, the, they've stepped the game up so much in terms of the necessity for you to write shows that are smart. Yeah. And, and some of this just comes out of not just catering to adults because they get to, but you know they have research, especially for things like My Little Pony, that Hasbro knows that that's a show that families co-watch. And when you get the parents involved as co-watchers, then you start conversations. And you also don't have to have the kids go beg their parents for toys. The parents are in the know and they can go, hey, would you like this and that? They're co-shoppers at that point as well. They're co-consumers. I think of, you know, sitting there and watching a show like Teen Titans Go, which has its own sort of backlash right? from, you know, hipster fans who are mad it's not anime. <laughs> right. Or even better, a show like, there's this show called The Amazing World of Gumball, which is hilarious. And it's very well written, and it's for my daughter, but it's also for me, because the writers of the show understand that I will probably be watching it with her. Mm-hmm. And so it's this very dual-layered sort of a thing. And that's the same thing that I think we began to find in the first couple of seasons of My Little Pony. Right. Let's, you know what, let's, I was thinking, let's start with just talking about the brony phenomenon first. And it's sort of like its little history, like how it gets going and what what Hasbro and Lauren Faust and her co-creators end up doing with that uh, and how they react to it. These adult viewers, and most of them are male. There's also adult females. They go to calling themselves Pegasisters. But the, the bronies are the main sort of thrust of this. Uh, these transgressive fans, these adult men who are not supposed to be watching a show for young girls. And what I think is kind of interesting is not only how... So first of all, this, this huge groundswell of fandom emerges that nobody really expected or saw coming. But I think what I find even more surprising is how the creators react to this. They discover that these people are watching the show and making comments about it, and there's a fandom created, and they start catering to these fans. So for example, there was you know the whole issue over a character that the fans dubbed somewhat controversially Derpy Hooves. Right. Which is this background pony that had a wonky eye. It was a purely an animation error. But after the fans sort of coalesced around this character and started making up stuff about the character, then the animators started purposefully putting this derpy-eyed character 
in the background all over the place. Eventually in season, was it season two or season three, where they actually officially recognize Derpy and she has speaking lines. Then for some backlash against people who felt that Derpy was a derogatory moniker, they went back and changed that a little bit. But the point being that they catered directly to the fandom. And then even in bumpers for uh, My Little Pony, uh, they have they specifically call out the bronies as part of their fans, like, hey, come watch the show. And then Hasbro starts issuing collector's packs. Well, this was the more this was the more interesting thing because Hasbro did not start releasing anything with Derpy Who's. What they started doing was issuing licenses to other people to mm-hmm. start producing Derpy Who's m- merchandise, which then they later rescinded when they realized the term Derpy was uh basically a a slur against disabled people so they 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 pulled that license back but then they also kind of let people keep producing the stuff i have two different collector's edition derpies in my office that say derpy who's on them but then i have a t-shirt that was listed on the website i bought it from under i forget what the title was they changed her name yeah, so I can't remember if they were they officially called her Cupcakes or whether there was a different. So they changed they changed her name to Ditsy Do. Ditsy Do, and then right. they changed her name to Muffins. Right. So both of which are ridiculous. <laughs> right, and so now I so I think that is particularly fascinating because there's no official acknowledgement per se of like, hey. You fans, come on down. They don't advertise them to them directly. It doesn't feel like they necessarily need to. They know there's a fandom there, and then they start issuing all this stuff where they know that those people will buy it, but their supposed target demographic, which is the four- to eight-year-old girls, uh, are not. But it's a tacit acknowledgement that the creators of the show know that these fans exist— Mm-hmm. and that they are welcome within the fandom. The show's creators are saying, you're welcome here. You're welcome to be a fan of this. Right. Then Hasbro is like, well, here's some more people we can sell some stuff to. So I guess we'll do that. Right. Which means that inside of the fandom and inside of the creators of the fan property, everyone is cool with what's happening. And then there comes this backlash from outside of that fandom. These people from outside who say, oh, the only reason you are interested in that has to be because something's wrong with you. Right. So let's start this way. Let's talk about what the bronies are getting from it, what they are as fans. Then let's talk about this backlash because I think the contrast here is is really illuminating. And so so here's what I'm seeing from and, and what I came to understand about the sort of brony culture that that popped up around it. It's to start with, it's a genuine and pretty normal fandom in the way all fandoms work. They have their sets of memes. They have their own specific language they use for certain things. They have certain inside jokes and references. It's a totally banal. If you know anything about fandoms, that's what they look like. But I think there's a couple of interesting things going on in terms of like, okay, they're just they're just enjoying it because they're fans. That's a basic thing. But I do think that there is a certain element of they like it in part because it's transgressive. And the way I'm seeing it is on sort of two levels of one is they're not indulging it because like, oh, this is for little girls and isn't this naughty. It's not that. It's more that they're trying to reclaim masculinity from this space of being about being tough and violent and not wanting to indulge in rainbow colors. 
pastels to something where you can be traditionally masculine at the same time that you love ponies. And so some of this is just the liberation of, oh my gosh, I don't have to like this other stuff. I can like this thing and it's still okay. So there's that liberating aspect at the same time that there's some people who put up this uh, front of, for example, the, the military bronies. I'm in the special forces and I like ponies. What are you going to say to me about it? The other thing that I find so interesting about it is that the way that people are mad about these fans being a fan of My Little Pony is inherently the reason why these fans are fans of My Little Pony in the first place. Because <laughs> right. we have made masculinity so god-awfully stupid in this culture that people who don't fit into this very rigid box of what it quote-unquote means to be a man have nowhere else to go but to these properties that aren't for them because they don't want to be the kind of man that stupid, toxic American masculinity tells you you have to be. Right. So if you don't want adult men to be fans of My Little Pony, you should stop being so awful to them all the time about everything else. And part of the backlash against the backlash, which is men saying, well, wait a minute, when I watch stupid violent stuff and I like that, then I must be some kind of wife-beating, moronic, drooling idiot. But when I watch this other stuff, then you're, then you're saying I'm basically a pedophile. So you're giving me no space at all to indulge in any kind of popular entertainment without judgment. Right. I would argue that there's a very specific group of things, popular culturally, that you're allowed to do as a man with no backlash at all, with, because it's the things you're supposed to do. So you're supposed to watch football, for example. And by the way, I'm not sort of denigrating the act of watching football. I watch as much football as anybody. So, you know, th <laughs> yeah. there's this idea that, you know, well, if you like this, then you're a toxic man. I'm like, no, actually, there's very little way around some parts of American masculinity. So you're allowed to watch football. You're allowed to be a fan of Star Wars, for example. Mm -hmm. That's a very mm -hmm. normal American man thing to be a fan of. Right. We've sort of normalized low levels of nerd culture. <laughs> right. The, the low-hanging fruit of nerd culture. You can be a football player and like Star Wars, for example. It's a very low-hanging fruit kind of a thing. You know, if you like anything that sort of veers off of that, there's a certain segment of men who will come around to police the borders of masculinity because policing the borders is what you do. Right. And increasingly women. Increasingly women. Yeah, I would say that too. Increasingly, there will be women who will come around to push you back towards toxic masculinity, which I find bizarre. Well, I think it... I've been thinking about this, and, and one of the things that frustrates me about some of the scholarship on bronies so far is most of it is just identifying that this thing exists, right? Which is fine. But I don't think people are really getting into, well, why do people hate bronies so much more than other types of fandoms? If you, I mean, if you really think like, oh, it's because of the clop people who do pornographic renditions of all of the pony characters. But I mean, this is rule 34 of the internet. There's you can just as easily pull up, you know, ship porn between SpongeBob and Sandy Cheeks, right? Nobody's pushing back against the adult fans of SpongeBob because of all the weird stuff you can find. Even, uh, I would say, fans of stuff that's more on the margins where people have a little bit of a reaction doesn't elicit the same sort of, you know, Sailor Moon or Kim Possible that kind of stuff, where we know there's adult male fans, and they might get a little crap, but nowhere near, they're not treated with the utter contempt that the bronies are. And so why is that? 
it's because those fandoms have all the same things in terms of both genuine earnest trivia like fandom as well as this sort of weirder corners of fetish stuff and, and pornography. I think honestly, it's because of the ridiculous double standard we have in this culture about gender. I really mm-hmm. do. If these were adult women who were a fan of some property that was targeted to seven and nine year old boys, people mm-hmm. would be like, oh, isn't that cute? Yeah, they would even be celebrated. I mean, imagine what would happen to a group of women showing up at Comic-Con who are like major, major fans of G.I. Joe or, you know, something similar. I think they would be celebrated. People would get their pictures taken with them. You know, Oh, cool. Your cosplaying is Snake Eyes. The bronies are not getting the reaction. I think you're right. There's a double standard there for sure. I also think it's really, really interesting that even if there are hooks that are specifically designed to bring an adult male fan into some quote-unquote girl's property. I think of when the Disney Channel rebooted Boy Meets World as Girl Meets World, Mm. where lots of us grew up at the end of our childhoods had Boy Meets World on television. And so we had this fandom of the thing that was for us at that time, Topanga fans everywhere. (laughs) And then there's this new property where Topanga's now the mom, Corey and Topanga are the parents, Mm -hmm. but the show's not about them. The show's about their preteen and eventually teenage daughter. And when you watch that show, like I would watch that show with my kid, but then sometimes I would watch that show without my kid. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I would tell people that there would be this weirdness of, you know, why are you as a grown up watching these Disney Channel shows? And I, you know, would always shoot back. They made it for me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. specifically, right. they made that show with characters I knew from my childhood for me. And now yeah. I'm not allowed anymore to watch it. That doesn't make any sense because now it's for girls because all of Disney Channel's programming is for girls, which we could talk about extensively. But right now, all of Disney Channel's programming is for the tween girl market. And yet, if you don't want me to watch it, don't go get my stuff. You know, I was, I was thinking about this and I mean, part of it has to do with, I think, a real widespread association with men of any kind and children of any age. Uh, and fears of pedophilia. I mean, it's the same reason why schools across the country, elementary schools, have a real tough time even finding male teachers. And some of those male teachers get get flack for being elementary school teachers. And I mean, forget it, at preschools. Like, they're basically shunned from becoming preschool teachers. And parents will actually actively police this and push back against school boards and, and push back against the teachers themselves. Like, what's wrong with you? You're a guy and you want to teach preschool kids. So I think that's attached to it in that there's a mainstream attitude that if men have an interest in things that are for children, there's something wrong with them. But we're all a fan of things that are for children. And if there's an adult person who says they're not, I actually would think there's something wrong with them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Grownups flock to Pixar movies. Grownups still (laughs) buy things with Elmo on them. Right. If you're an adult human being and you're like, I'm not a fan of anything for children at all, you have severe emotional disabilities that you probably need to have checked out. So I don't think it's that you're an adult fan of a thing for children. I mean, if that was the case, Harry Potter would not be the most read book on earth other than the Bible. Right. And there's never been pushback against adults reading that book by themselves. Or the Hunger Games or any of these other things that young adult literature outstrips adult literature in terms of sales all the time. Yeah. And it's not all, you know, 14-year-olds who are reading Twilight. Right. There are a lot of not 14-year-olds reading Twilight. 
the difference between something like Harry Potter and Twilight and all this stuff is that they contain elements, or rather they don't contain elements that are supposedly exclusively the purview of young girls, which is bright, pretty colors and joyful things in which people have a nice time with their friends and solve problems through the help of their friends and so on. So where that comes in is this there's this weird double bind where in our culture, men are inherently gross and depraved. And when and when they aren't that, oh, gross, men, men are like this. And that's a shame because they should change. And something's wrong with them. But then if you're not like that, something's wrong with you too. Exactly. Exactly. Men are pigs, but if they don't wall in the mud, they are disturbed betas. Which goes back to my original point, which is we as a society have made masculinity so god-awfully stupid. There's literally no way to quote unquote win at being a man in this culture anymore. Men, patriarchy itself has made masculinity really stupid because there's no way to win at it. You know, when you see the backlash against something like bronies, it's not just the like, hey, why can't you just be a normal dude and pay your taxes? No, no. The reaction goes to the complete opposite as a way of kind of like eradicating this version of masculinity that thinks pretty pink ponies are okay. Like, hey, they should just join the Marines and go serve in Afghanistan. That'll cure them. Not only is it just patriarchal, it's 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 archaic. It's the sort of the way to cure a man of that kind of foible is to send them off to war. I mean, that's a very that's swinging the pendulum fairly significantly the other direction, you know. And it's the sort of thing you would have seen out of, you know, the 1800s. There's always this nostalgia about the good old days in the 1950s. And I keep reminding people the 1950s sucked for a lot of people. It certainly sucked for women. It certainly sucked for black people. It certainly sucked for a lot of people. So it's this return of this toxic white hegemonic masculinity that never made sense in the first place. Which is why I, you know, continue to say in a sort of a backwards way, patriarchy has munchausen by proxy. It has created this situation in which it has poisoned the very people it is trying to prop up and made it such that there's no way for that person to prosper. Toxic masculinity is an inherently downward spiral. So what we're seeing now, I, I like to believe, is just a kind of death rattle slash pendulum swing in the same way that the Trumpers have been. It's a last grasp at a world that is changing out of their control. Not only is it changing out of their control, but it's a world that's literally disappearing. It's literally about to cease to exist. So in conclusion about the bronies, what? I think in conclusion about the bronies, I would say the bronies are the logical conclusion of a society that has made being a man really a not attractive thing to be. As a media producer, provide something that's good and smart and well-made, and a group of people liked it and adopted the culture of it and were made to feel as though there was something wrong with them for enjoying it, which is a pretty sad commentary on us as a society. I think that's where I would come down. Yeah, yeah, no, well said. Two things I want to add is sort of, you know, projecting into the future a little bit, near future and longer term. One is I'm curious as to what happens when this show inevitably goes off the air. I'm curious as to what happens with Brony slash Pegasister fandom when the show's done and people are not really buying the toys because the toys have also gone off the rails. And so are people going to sort of keep that kindling alive because they um, a lot of them especially hardcore fans think themselves as a a proper community and they do charity work and they like that's how they identify so i wonder somewhat if they become kind of like the the trekkies of the new century you know where for about 10 years star 
Trek had nothing but a lot of hardcore fans who were looked down on by the rest of society. But the other thing I, th- I, I wonder about quite a lot is that we're going to have, you know, with all these sorts of properties, we have these waves of nostalgia coming along where people come back and revisit the things that were formative for them in a particular time of life. And so what happens to kids, you know, our kids, for example, grew up with My Little Pony. We all watch the show together. They have a, a whole bunch of ponies. They don't play with them, but they're around. What's going to happen, you know, 10, 15 years from now when our little girls revisit the height of the Friendship is Magic years? And are they going to sort of like find a way into the old Brony <laughs> and Pegasus community? Or is this a kind of different generation, maybe kind of like the, the prequel Star Wars fans who they have one engagement with it which is just pure nostalgia and i loved it as a kid and another engagement where it's like a more realistic assessment of now this wouldn't happen to my little pony i don't think is it's still a quality show but like a lot of prequel people sort of like the prequels almost ironically yeah so i'm curious as to where that sort of goes and how that fits into a fandom and also by which time most of the people who are the most upset about such a thing as bronies existing tend to be older and are probably going to be dying or dead. <laughs> you know, fair enough. Just, just the thing that happens in life as cultures change, right. right? The the people, the old guard, die off, and the new ideas come across. And so, I, I think what I would add to that, I guess, is whether people our girls' age will try to reject the older fans and see them as creepy, also, or whether they're going to. So they try to reclaim fandom of My Little Pony for adult fans who used to be the kids or will they be like i remember we've always had bronies and we thought they were pretty cool right and that and and a lot of that will be the case i know with i mean it depends on the girls of course but like for our girls you know they they saw us being supportive of that and we each had pony shirts that we wore on occasion just to you know right and it was really fun i have to admit and funny to walk into a preschool pickup one day with rainbow dash on my t-shirt and several little girls going oh it's rainbow dash and the mothers are like very confused right (laughs) <laughs> right. No. I wonder if when my daughter is my age, if she will look back and be like, oh, this is a thing me and my dad used to do together, right. which would be a very atypical thing to say if my daughter was my age now in 2018. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be a sentence she would never be able to say. Right. And and how does that affect uh, our daughter's relations with other men and women right. uh, and how they construct their own sort of gender identity and expectations and relationships? Right. They're, you know, are our girls going to be out there looking for boys who can watch My Little Pony and still be totally okay with their masculinity? Right. I would like to think so. I would like to think so, too. I think that's likely. But, you know, I can see a rebellious phase where you're like, screw you, Dad. I'm going out with the... Uh... I'm going out with this meathead. I don't care what you say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Here's hoping not. Right. Well, um, I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Kyle Contour. And I want to thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Dr. Contour will be back later on this season while we'll be talking about something different. And that's what we've got for you this week. That's it. Show's over. See you next time. The Deconstruction Workers Podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or Twitter at podcastdcw. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. Additional music for the episode was composed by Alexander Nakarada. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.